I'm going to start this morning by actually going back to last Sunday's sermon to a particular sentence I said. Uh, when I actually said something contrary to what I meant to say, and some of you know what I'm talking about, but I was talking about Tom Holland and his reaction to the, to the Me Too movement. And what I meant to say is that he, he noticed this moral outrage in himself um, about the abuse that had been happening to these women. Uh, he was sympathetic with these women. But what uh, was revealed to me after the sermon is what I actually said is that he was having this moral outrage at the women who were experiencing this abuse. Now, I, I think everything I said up to and after that should make clear what I meant to say. But I wanted to clear, clarify that. I felt terrible when I found out. But especially for Tom Holland's reputation, I wanted to make that clear. But also to, to clarify, we, we should always be outraged at any form of abuse we hear about, uh, especially uh, if we are followers of Christ. That is our heritage. That is the example of our Lord. And so that's, that should be true of us. But yeah, sometimes you say something quite contrary to what you meant to say, and it's, it's reminded me actually of a story um, of the late Francis Schaeffer who started Labrie with his wife Edith, and he was preaching this fiery sermon. And he, was, he had this refrain he intended to say from Romans 2 throughout the sermon, seek immortality, seek immortality. And he, was trying, he wanted to say this throughout the sermon, but instead what he actually said was seek immorality, <laughs> seek immorality. And he was so riled up, no one felt the, the courage or had the courage to tell him what was actually being said. Um, so I've told Anna, if this happens again, <laughs> she has permission to correct me in the middle of a sermon. Uh, and yeah, sometimes that can be embarrassing, but sometimes we need to set that right. So yeah, sometimes you can say something quite contrary to what you meant to say. Sometimes you can say exactly what you meant to say and you still get misunderstood. So, for example, uh, in our gospel reading from uh, chapter 5 in, in Matthew, from the Sermon on the Mount that we heard this morning, that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning, Jesus says this, he says, Don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Which suggests that Jesus was getting a reputation for being someone who could care less about the Old Testament, who is throwing it aside, who is doing something totally different. And uh, it appears here he's correcting this misunderstanding that his mission in life was actually to, to do away with the Old Testament, um, which isn't too surprising when you read the Gospels and you read about what he said and what he did in relation to the Sabbath and to the temple, which were a big deal in the Old Testament. So the Law and the Prophets being a way of just saying the Old Testament for us. But Jesus wanted to make it clear that wasn't the case. That's not true. Actually, Jesus says, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill them, to complete them, to take us to where they were pointing us to all along. The, the Old Testament wasn't the destination, but it was pointing us in that direction. And that destination that arrives with Jesus and all that he said and taught and did. And the two images of salt and light 
that Jesus gives just before this, help us to imagine what that fulfillment means should look like. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He says that first to the Jews, who were his primary hearers at that point, uh, but then now all of us who are in Christ. It's true of us too. So let's first consider the salt uh, image. Salt, of course, was the refrigerator of the ancient Near East. It kept things from going bad. And so I asked one of our resident scientists, Peter Rapp here, who has a extensive experience in synthetic chemistry, which I should have asked what that means exactly, but uh, I asked him to tell me some, some things about salt's properties that might have some relevance for our passage today. And actually, one of the more compelling things was this thing. He, he noted how much salt is in our tears and how we need, we, we need to be people who are the tears of the earth. Um, and I don't, that wasn't... Uh, I don't think in, in Jesus' original intention, but it sure is in line with that. We should be, as the salt of the earth, be the people who weep over all that's corrupt and broken in this world. That should be true about us. Well, he shared a lot of fascinating things about salt I can't get into this morning, but he did share something about how salt is this drying agent, which made it this preservative. And he said, as a chemist, you would say it has large free energy of dissolution. <laughs> but for us non-scientists, that means water is just very attracted, or I mean, sorry, salt is very attracted to water. And so this, this attraction call, or causes it to pull the water from different organic mixtures, which helps to dry them, of course. But this is the basis for salt preservative antiseptic properties. It, it kills bacteria by drawing out the water from the bacteria. And so this is how salt keeps food from going bad. Now, of course, salt also makes our food taste better. It enhances the flavor of what's there. And so when Jesus is saying to his hearers, you are the salt of the earth, He's saying, your purpose is to be the people who preserve the goodness of God's good world and are people who help enhance the flavor of that goodness. God made the world and said, it is good. It's a world he loves and his people should too, and they are called to preserve it from corruption, to kill the bacteria of the world and to enhance its flavor. And of course, there's all kinds of ways you can do this, all kinds of vocations as social workers and as lawyers and academics and scientists and medical professionals and carpenters and entrepreneurs and artists and on and on you could go. There's all kinds of ways the people of God can work to preserve the goodness of the world and enhance its flavor. So originally, this was the purpose of Israel, Right? So these words, again, were, were given to the Jewish audience that this time the Gentiles were not present there, at least not in great numbers. And so now, of course, they apply to all, all of us who live in Christ, in Messiah Jesus. But as N.T. Wright writes, 
quote, Its original meaning was a challenge to Jesus' own contemporaries. God had called Israel to be the salt of the earth, but Israel was behaving like everyone else with its power politics, its factional squabbles, its militant revolutions. How could God keep the world from going bad, the main function of salt in the ancient world, if Israel, his chosen salt, had lost its distinctive taste? That distinctive taste was connected to the law, which Jesus summarizes as loving God with all that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself. And the law showed basically Israel how to be the salt and light of the earth, if they really lived it. And so that when Israel turned from that way, outlined in the law, they were turning away from that saltiness. They were losing their saltiness. So again, Peter uh, helped me here. He let me know that actually high-quality salt can never actually lose its saltiness. Salt is always salt. But most likely what Jesus is referring to here at this time was a, a low-grade kind of salt that was mixed with other minerals. And so when that mixture got wet, the salt would wash away and then become saltless a saltless residue that perhaps might get slightly discolored and off-white and then no longer a preservative because the sodium chloride was gone. And when that happens, it's time to throw away what remains. It's no longer useful for that purpose. Well, when the people of God, when that happens to them, when they lose that saltiness, when they let that salt get wet and wash away, then they too become useless for that purpose. And society throws them away. So instead of being known as these people who both preserve and enhance the goodness of the world, they're known sometimes for the opposite of that. And they're like, we're not going to them anymore. We're moving on. And they rightly throw us away. And so that's why today people aren't just asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, is it good? <laughs> Is it actually something that, it, that protects and enhances the goodness of this world? And they should be asking that of us. And so though, when we retain that saltiness and preserving and enhancing wherever we go, that's when people are drawn to that, as they should. They respect that. So that when there's a problem, they start coming to you. When they want to do something better, they start coming to you and to the people of God because they know that's what they're known for. Now, there's going to be others who persecute you for it, especially if in that preserving, you're challenging them and their corrupt ways, whether personally or structurally, politically, or whatever. So that's what happens. That's what Jesus addresses in the Beatitudes, right? He says, blessed are you when, not if, but when you are persecuted for righteousness, for doing these kinds of things. Blessed are you when you identify yourself with me and people persecute you for, for this. Jesus, who is the original salt and light of the world. That will happen. But others res will respect that. They will see that saltiness. And they're going to want to know 
where's that source? Where's that coming from? Because I want to go there. That's how it usually works. Which brings us to what Jesus says next. You are the light of the world. So I asked another one of our scientists, uh, John Zuhon. I don't know if he's here this morning. John, are you here? There he is. All right. <laughs> I hope I get this right, John. But uh, John's an, an astrophysicist. So I asked him again, like, do you have any thoughts about light as it relates to this? And being actually the good theologian he is, he's like, well, Dave, you know, I got to say, it's not good practice to take modern understandings of light and read it back into the text. <laughs> and that's exactly right, John. So with all that in mind, <laughs> hear this. He said, one of the interesting things about light is it has this long range. And so it, it actually weakens with distance, but it actually can travel an infinite distance. I had some questions about that, so I'll talk to you about later, John. But let's keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So in Israel was, in the Old Testament, Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles. And here Jesus says it a little differently. He says, you are the light of the world. So the people of God, originally Israel again, but also us in Christ, we're meant to demonstrate the holy, beautiful, just, and merciful way of God in our lives, in our work, in our communities, in our culture making. We're meant to display that distinctive saltiness we receive from God. In the Old Testament, but now in the Sermon on the Mount, fulfilled in the Sermon on the Mount, in our deeds of love. We're meant to shine in such a way that we just don't expose the darkness, but we also show something of what it means to be human. What God created humans, redeemed humans to be. That's something of what the people of God should be shining uh, about. They should be shining in such a way and, and bright enough so that they actually show people enough light to, to show them the way back to God. And with a light that's attractive enough that they want to come back to God. So Jesus says, let your light shine before others in such a way so that they might see your good works and then give glory to your Father in heaven. Always remember that the light we're shining is a borrowed light from God himself. Right? When that light is emanating from our good works, that's a beautiful thing. That's a compelling thing. And people want to know, where does that come from? I want to go there. I spent a number of years at Labrie Fellowship, uh, both in Switzerland and here in Massachusetts, a place where people gum, come to learn about the Christian faith, sometimes to decide whether they're going to be a Christian or not. And I heard many times, many stories about why people wanted to become a Christian and why they didn't. And the biggest reason for both are the lives of Christians, of other Christians. So for those Christians, of course, who were really living Jesus-like lives, that was an encouragement for people to become a Christian. Where those who were living uh, in a way that leaves a bad taste in your mouth that looked more like darkness than light, they were the biggest reasons people didn't want to become Christians. And that's understandable. And so people would come to Labrie, and they would come there sometimes just to give it an honest assessment. 
and say, you know, I got to check this out just to have integrity here, but I hope it's not true because I don't want to be like that Christian I met. <laughs> it really ticked me off and left a bad taste in my mouth. And then others would come and say, I hope this is true because I met this Christian that looked a lot like Jesus and I hope it's true. <clears throat> well, that, that makes me think of the light imagery and thinking, you know, how for one, this light that we shine has eternal consequences. It's going to carry over into eternity in the new creation, the, the light we shine and the effects it has on people and on culture where God makes all things new. But it also dims with distance. So we can't rely too much on the Christians of the past to shine the light of Christ into the present. We need fresh examples of the light of Christ in our deeds today. But let's be honest. This is really hard. <laughs> Incredibly difficult to do. It's hard to live as a Jesus-like salt and like salt and light Christian. Sociologists have noted for a long time that when you are in a when you come from a culture that is at odds or different than the culture in which you are living, you typically do one of two things to relieve the tension. One of the things you do is you assimilate. You just become like the culture in which you live. The other is to tribalize into a kind of ghetto setting with people who are like you and who share the same views. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with doing that. There's understandable reasons why people do that. Unless you're a Christian. Unless you are somehow denying your saltiness. And unless you're not being a light in the world anymore. A former co-worker of mine, Dick Hyes, who, who I worked with at, at um, the library here in Massachusetts, he wrote a great little book on this called Chameleon Christianity. And then he shows the temptations of Christians is to become more like a chameleon or a musk ox than salt and light. And let me explain that. Chameleons are easy enough. They, they stand for Christian assimilation. So this is when Christians just adapt. When there's dissonance, uh, they simply change their color to fit in into their environment. Right? So any Christian distinction, belief, ethic, practice that is at odds or gets people in trouble in, in the areas where they live and work in the society they live, those are just let go. And they just learn how to blend in like a chameleon. <clears throat> the musk ox stands for another way we deal with this tension through Christian tribalization, or what's called, we call the holy huddle. So the musk ox, they do this thing when one of their young or one of the, the ox gets injured, what happens is all the adults, uh, musk ox, come around the injured or young um, ox, and they stick their horns out, ready to protect uh, any dangerous intruder coming. Well, Christians, out of fear or anger 
or just wanting an easier way can do that, can have that stance towards the surrounding culture. We're not going to let anything in, and we're not going there either. We're going to stay here in our, in our tribe. In the end, it doesn't matter whether you're a chameleon or a muskox, neither are being salt and light in the world, right? And why do we do this? Why are we tempted? Because this is the easier way. It's hard to be salt and light. It's hard to live out the Sermon on the Mount. It's hard to be in the world and not of the world at the same time. It's a hard place to be. That's why when we feel that pressure, when we're tempted to be that chameleon or musk ox, we need to remember the good news. The good news that our Lord Jesus is the one who in the power of the Spirit fulfills all of this. First in his own life and then in ours. First in his humanity and then in ours. He says, Jesus said, I came not to to do away with the law and the prophets, but to complete them, to bring them to their true fulfillment, their their true destination. And the Sermon on the Mount gives us example after example of what that fulfillment looks like. The life of Jesus gives us example after example of what that fulfillment looks like, and in turn, what it means to be salt and light. Jesus resisted every temptation to be a chameleon or a muskox. He endured every difficulty to be that salt and light. And he did it as one of us in our flesh and blood. Not as a superhero, but as one of us, tempted in every way as we are, yet in the power of the Holy Spirit was able to resist and stay the course. And he did that so that in him, and anointed with the same Holy Spirit, we could do the same thing. So that in him, we can see in Christ, we've already done this. And in Christ, we can continue to do this. That's where the grace is. That's where the enablement is. A few weeks ago, I gave a summary of what it means to be a Christian according to the the Gospel of John, and it was this, abide and go. And adapted to this passage or applied here, it would be abide in the one who fulfills, and then you can go and be salt and light. Without that abiding eventually you're going to become a chameleon or a muskox, I think. The call is too high in the Sermon on the Mount to think that you can figure this out, do this in your own strength. In him, though, and in the power of the Spirit, we are able to fulfill the law and the prophets in this way. We are able, when nobody else is, to preserve and enhance the goodness of the world. And we can do this all in a way that leads people back to Christ. The Christian community was born out of communion with Christ. And the fruit we talked about last week of caring for the vulnerable, but that now has been practiced through the centuries by Christians, 
has also spilled out beyond the church into the greater society. That fruit comes from the root of Christ. And so when you get rid of that root, that fruit's not going to last very long. It's going to go bad. We've got to get back to the root of that fruit. We've got to abide in the one who fulfills so that we can go and be salt and light. May it be so. Amen.